This episode is brought to you by Huggies, Mostela, Bio Oil, and Purex Baby. Baby Time Podcast for new parents and parents once again. Hi, I'm Michaela Riasa, mother of two daughters, certified postpartum doula, breastfeeding educator, childbirth educator, and founder of Baby Time. When I had my first baby, there wasn't enough information about pregnancy, birth, and parenting. Now there's too much information, and that can become overwhelming and confusing. I promise I will help you figure out what is real and what is not, what you need to know and what you don't. Please join me and my guests every week. Let's get started. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. We're back at Baby Time Podcast or Baby Time Conversations. We're changing the name because actually we have conversations, which are really cool conversations. (laughs) And today I'm with Laura Nance. So today, Laura and I are going to have a conversation about how babies are tiny little humans, but there are so many cultural taboos or cultural issues that don't respect that. And we seem, at least in in the Western culture, we see babies as little adults or that they should be able to do what we do and, and we expect so much of them, yet they have their own agenda. They're not ready for that. We try to schedule them, their naps, their sleeping. We do cry it out because that's what we're told works. And it does work, but does it really in the long run? <laughs> so so Laura's um, joining me today to discuss all of these things that we expect little babies to do. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and being with us today. And let's get started. All right. Thank you so much for asking me, Michaela. This is really exciting. I'm glad to be able to get on here and chat with you. And this is really a topic that I am really super passionate about um, because I do see so many, you know, all of the all of the books, all of the resources out there are about scheduling babies mm-hmm. and, you know, your baby should, you know, don't don't let your baby manipulate you and all of these different things. And yet we're expecting these things um, of babies that we don't, you know, necessarily even really do ourselves. So it's, we're, we're asking them to do more than we do as adults. Mm-hmm. And that's not really fair. So Yeah, because no one can go and say, okay, it's time to, for you to go to sleep. Like you can't force someone to go to sleep on command. You can't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I I talk to parents all the time when we talk about feeding. That's a really big one. You know, it's, you know, we got to, we have to feed every two hours, three hours, four hours, and they have to eat exactly this much, you know, whatever, whatever book they read or whatever their care provider said, then they like, you know, get out these timers with their phones and they're, you know, checking to make sure that their baby is eating at the exact right time. Uh, And then, you know, baby will, maybe start acting like they're hungry before that two-hour time and it's like, oh no, baby can't eat then. And, but what about us? Do we eat at the exact same, you know, increment every time we eat? What about taking a drink of water? Sometimes it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm just going to get this drink of water. Um, you know, as, we allow that for babies. As, um, because Laura and I are both postpartum doulas. Actually, Laura trained me as a postpartum doula uh, through Kappa. And as a, as a postpartum doula, I've been with moms 
that the baby will start cueing that they're hungry. So I point it out. I'm like, oh, wow, look, your baby is sticking his tongue out or is opening their mouth. They're doing the rooting reflex. You know, they may be hungry and they're like, oh, no, it's not time for them to eat. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but I have to respect the parents' wishes or ideals. But I mean, I can support and kind of nudge. Well, maybe your baby's showing you that they are hungry now and not in another hour when they're but it's hard. Or I've had moms call me and say, my baby's not sleeping because I'm also doing, um, I also work in sleep certification or I gentle sleep with parents. And I've learned the first question to ask is, how old is your baby? And then they're like, two weeks old. I'm like, oh, okay, your baby's yes. not supposed to sleep. <laughs> no, your baby I... sleeps, but not the way you want to sleep. Right. Yeah, I had somebody with a two-week-old the other week ask if it was um, okay to go ahead and, you know, is it, is it too early to let my baby cry it out uh, uh, with a two-week-old, um, you know. And, and, and actually, I was, I was in a support group when I was just starting my, this, my change in career after I became a mom. And I remember in this support group, Laura, there was a mom, she had a two- or three-week-old baby. We were in Oregon. And the mom said, I have the best baby. My baby is sleeping eight to nine hours a night. <laughs> and all the moms were jealous until the person who, the moderator, she said, uh, you need to go to the pediatrician immediately because this is not normal. This is, Something's going on. And when she came back the next week, she told us that the baby wasn't waking up because the baby was not eating enough. So the baby didn't have the energy to wake up. So what she thought as a new mom was amazing because she had the best baby, quote unquote, the best baby um, was actually her baby was suffering. Right. Yeah. Call it good baby syndrome. The good baby syndrome. Exactly. In the first two weeks, they're shutting down because they have to conserve their energy because they're not getting enough to eat. You know, so yeah. And there are some, there are some schedules out there. There are some programs out there that have newborn babies sleeping from 10 PM to 6 AM with like, you're, you're supposed to just ignore them during that period of time. That is so crazy. And there's so much information, uh, the neuroscience behind it. There's so much information now that's, that we can see how that affects the baby's brain as it's developing to not respond to our babies, to not be with our babies, to separate. They're not meant to be separated from us. They're meant to be with us. But our culture wants us, I don't know if it's because they need us to go back to work. I mean, I know in the States you have almost zero maternity leave. It's very, in in the Dominican Republic, we have 14 weeks mater, paid maternity leave. And it's still yeah, not We have enough. no guaranteed paid in, in the States. It's, you know, zero paid. Uh, some people get it, but it's not required. It's not legal. It's not, it's not right. federal. It's not law. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So, yeah. And that's the thing is that, you know, we think about, babies, they are, they're little humans, obviously, they're little people, and they come out and they have their own personalities, and they have their own needs and their own wants. But they've been living in this, you know, this little space capsule that is, 
you know, perfectly regulated with everything. You know, their food is coming to them pretty much continually, you know, directly, their energy directly through their their bloodline, you know, their umbilical cord. Um, it's perfect temperature. It's the the lighting is very ambient. The the noises are loud, but a consistent loud and it's wet. And then they come out into this world where noises are sharp or it's really quiet and it's cold and they're falling apart because there's nothing like keeping them all snug together anymore. Uh, The smells, the sounds, everything is completely different. And we expect them to be able to just transition into that and be able to be separate. You know, they don't even know that they're a separate being from their their birth parent yet. You know, they to them it's they're they're still one. They, um, were, they don't know how they were carried by their mom for nine months and all of a sudden the mom is like they're born and then they want to keep continue being carried and the mom's like, they just want to be carried all day. I'm like, because that's how they've been the whole nine months. Their whole life they've been carried. So it's normal that they be, it's not normal for them not to have movement or to be lying down. That's not normal to them. You can't, and they're afraid that they're going to spoil them. I can't believe that in 2021, people still believe that they're going to spoil a baby because they respond to its needs, because they're, because they hold their baby. That's, it's insane that that's still. Yeah. It's so, it's so ridiculous and it's so wrong you know, neurologically, we think about, we think about us again, as adults, I always look at it like, why do we expect these babies to do something we can't do? Uh, when we, when we travel, say you go, you know, you go travel for some reason and you're staying in a strange place, a different, you know, a hotel or somebody else's house. Do you sleep well? Uh, usually we don't because it's a strange place. And so, but we expect babies to come out and sleep on their back with nothing surrounding them, with, you know, all of these differences by themselves. And then when they don't, it's like there's something wrong with the baby. But their experience has just changed. Their world has been turned upside down. And we as adults, again, we have, you know, a change in circumstances, whether it's we move, we change jobs, we, we have a baby. We, you know, our, our kids graduate from school. Our kids leave, whatever. What do we do? We turn to our friends. We turn to our, our mother. We turn to whoever and we're like, I need to talk about this. I need to process this. I need somebody to, to go through this with. And yet with babies, these little teeny tiny humans who haven't a clue of what's going on, we're like, oh no, you got to figure this out on your own. You have to go be by yourself and, you know, you you have to learn to work this out. And it just blows my mind that we, we, as a culture, not we as in you and I, Mm -hmm. but we as a culture see it this way. It's so wrong. Um, I know like when I first went away to college, remember the first time I got sick what was the very first, I woke up one morning with this like raging sore throat and fever and headache. And I called my mother. Um, and I was like, I want my mom, you know, I was 12 <laughs> hours away from her. There was nothing she could do for me, but I had to call her. And that's what our babies do in the, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, when they are hungry or tired or whatever, if they just need to be 
held and hugged, they call their mom. They're like, hey, help me here. I think we need, there needs to be a shift in, in the paradigm where moms don't resent the fact that their babies wake up in the middle of the night. They should be thankful that their babies are able to wake up in the middle of the night and call out for them to have their needs met. Because yes. we're, they have to, we, we need to work on that shift on, you know, and working with moms and saying, your baby will wake up. That's the sign of a healthy baby, a baby that will wake up and ask for you. That's what we need. And yes, it's exhausting. But because also our culture does not support postpartum. We're not supposed to do it by ourselves, yet we are expected to do it by ourselves culturally. And so many moms live far away from their moms. Like They don't have that that support, that, that group. Well, they can always hire a postpartum doula. <laughs> That's what we're there for. But to help moms understand when your baby wakes up, even, yes, they're waking up two or three times a night. That's a sign of a healthy, normal newborn. And you should be thankful for that and that you can be able to respond. And you won't always know what the issue is. The issue may just be the mom. I, I, I'm 45 years old and I don't like sleeping alone. When my husband goes away on business, I bring one of my girls into the bed with me, even though I don't sleep well with them, but they're still there. I'm like, okay. I ha- so how, how do we expect a baby to sleep by themselves in when they've been with mom the whole time? I mean, it's 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 a lot to expect of a of a baby, of a toddler, of of a young child. It's I think we expect way too much, and our culture does not help. <laughs> no, there's no res- respect for that. And then I was just thinking about how, like, when this this happens, and then. You know, 13, 14, 15 years down the road, these same parents are like, I can't get my teenager to talk to me. She won't leave her room. I don't know what's going on with them. And it's like, you cut them off when they were three days old. You said, figure this out on your own. Yep. Um, you know, we we build these relationships from the very, very beginning. Yes. And, you know, I when my son was 17, 18 years old and people were like, oh my gosh, he talks to you about everything. And I'm like, yes, it's fantastic. Um, you know, it, he talks a lot. Um, and that could be exhausting, but you know what? I didn't have that. You know, other people were like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. My teenagers, you know, he goes and he locks himself in his room. I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, sometimes I wouldn't mind if mine went and locked himself in his room and didn't talk to me. But it's so great that he felt like he could talk to me. And that's because we had, we, I automatically just kind of did the, the listening to my baby from the beginning. Um, I didn't have the internet. My Thank God. I, I did, <laughs> but it was the, it was just starting. It was, just yeah, starting. it was, you know, that dial up thing. So, um, you know, I didn't spend much time on it, but uh, I just went with my instinct and, it wasn't until later on that I started seeing all of these other parents, like really, you know, looking at these books, your baby can sleep for 12 hours a night by the time they're 12 weeks old. And it uh, makes me think of Jeff Goldblum and Jurassic Park, just because they can doesn't mean they should, mm-hmm. you know. Nature will find a way. <laughs> yes, get exactly. Right. It will backfire. It will backfire. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, 
you know, it is. We're we're laying down this foundation for this relationship from the moment, actually from the moment of conception, you know, even in the womb. But from the moment our babies are born, we are really building their relationship and building their trust in us and our trust in them. You know, that's another thing. When we listen to our babies, we're believing them. We're believing when our baby says, I'm hungry, we're believing our baby. We're putting trust that our baby knows themselves better than that book knows our baby, better than some professional knows our baby. And so we trust our babies. And when we trust them and listen to them, then they gain trust in us. And so then when they are, you know, two and starting to push boundaries, you know, there is still that level of they trust us and know that we are there. We can handle it and we can handle it. Exactly. And then as they get older and again, you know, each, each, age level, they're pushing boundaries and pushing boundaries and learning more and becoming more independent. But if we've built that trust from the very beginning, when they are in their teenage years and pushing some boundaries and trying to figure things out, they're still, they're going to listen to us because we've built that trust. They may not listen right away. It may take a little bit, um, but they're they're still going to to have that because we've laid that foundation of trusting them and building that trust in that relationship from the beginning. You know, it's when babies also, well, another thing that we, we tend to do or that I think in, mostly in this culture, we are very responsive to our babies during daylight hours. And as soon as nighttime comes, we turn off. We're like, no, you deal with it. And so babies are getting such such mixed signals that they will start to turn off themselves. They will shut down. There will be, emotionally, they will not be available. Where They're not developing certain, um, they're not ha- feeling that support, that emotional support at night that they should feel during the day, that they do feel during the day. So then they're getting completely mixed signals and they're like, they don't know what to do. And I, I, I was learning that babies will always preserve the relationship. So if they need to adapt for the mom to be okay, then they do adapt. And that so babies will start to sleep because if they don't sleep, then they risk losing the mother relationship because mom is either she's anxious or the night crying just triggers something in her that the babies pick up on and they don't want to risk losing their mom. So then they do just kind of turn off. And when I read that, I was like, or I've been learning about that. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, I think Gabor Nate, Dr. Gabor Nate, he talks about that. He's a psychologist. He's a family physician in in uh, Canada. I don't know if you've heard about him. I don't think so. Okay, so he has a book called Hold On to Your Kids with Gordon Neufeld. Okay. Amazing, amazing book. And what you were just talking about, how when we respond to our kids, as parents, we, we remain like the primary... Uh, caretaker. They're, they're like, they call it the alpha role. We're in the alpha role, but it can be the prime, the primary caretaker role. When we don't respond to our kids, then because culture, our doctors told us to let them cry it out or just the grandmother said, because that's just the way that it was or it has been for 
close to a century. That's the information we've been told or given. So when we don't respond to them, they will find other people to attach to. And it's normally other children. So this is like the first time in history that children are influencing other children. So another immature being is influencing another immature being. And when parents try to step in, the kids are like, no, you weren't there when I needed you. And it's not on a conscious level. They're just like, no, you don't fit into my... And and parents, unfortunately, I mean, I didn't know anything when I, when I had my first daughter. And my husband, very, very uh, certain, he told me very... What's the word? Uh, he was very sure of himself. He goes... On her, she was three days old. On the fifth day, she's moving to her room. We're not rooming. And I'm like, okay. Because I know that my co-sleeping with my mom and my sisters affected my parents' relationship. So I had that very um, vivid in my memory from my dad telling me that. So I was like, okay. So she moved to her room and I would go and I would breastfeed her at night and I'd go back to my room. But I separated her from a, but not, but I didn't know better. And so with our second daughter, I'm like, no, we're co-sleeping. <laughs> we're co-sleeping and I'm breastfeeding and she's not leaving the room. And if we need, we had to buy a bigger bed. Yep. <laughs> and, and we, I mean, the relationship is, and I have an amazing relationship with my first daughter, with my firstborn, but there was always kind of this distance. And unfortunately it was, I, st- I tell her, you know, I keep trying to make it up to her. This is why I created Baby Time, precisely because I didn't know. Nobody told me. And so that's why I want to bring all this information. That was 16 years ago. And I can't believe that still 16 years later, people are still doing that and not understanding the importance of being with your baby 24 hours a day. I mean, your baby needs us. So Right. And that's, you know, when you were talking about how if we're not there for our children, they're going to find somebody um, to be that that influencer for them or that, that connection point for them. And, you know, I know I've read some of the research that talks about the the long-term effects of that is that if they, if they don't find that, then they're just, you know, they keep looking and they keep looking and they keep looking. Uh, And that's really where you find a lot more of the um, people who have a harder time with attaching um, Mm -hmm. because they're always looking for that and that it, can lead to, you know, promiscuity when they get older and things like that, because they're always kind of like, not, again, not consciously, but they have this drive to find this attachment and this connection that they didn't get when they were younger. And so they're constantly looking for that. And, you know, and that's, then you, you know, I mean, we could go down a really big wormhole and say that then, you know, this is where we get into really bad relationships because then somebody is like, they're, so needy for this love and this attachment that then they end up in these abusive relationships. And obviously that's not the way it goes with every single person, but there is some research that indicates that we do see that, that trend because they are just, they're searching for that connection. So that attachment that they didn't get, they didn't get that first attachment. And I think it's like, there have to be so many other moms like me that didn't know but there's still time that even if you didn't know, you can still go back and work on that relationship in other ways. It's not like, okay, you're, you're screwed. I, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I messed you up and I'm sorry. And um, But there is a way to, to, to work through it and to make them 
to, to work on that relationship, even if it wasn't at, as a newborn or as a toddler, because we were taught other things. And I tell my daughter, I didn't know what I didn't know. But now I know. So now I can make changes and be a better mom. And even to my 13-year-old the other day, I realized, I said, I was, again, because I'm always studying and trying to figure out how I'm going to survive each stage of my children. And so now we're in adolescence. (laughs) And so I was reading um, something. Well, I was actually talking about a toddler, how we don't always have to solve their problems. Sometimes we can just hold the space. And just holding the space, no matter how big their meltdown is, just gives them the security and they feel safe. And even though it can be intense, because a toddler tantrum can last 30, 40 minutes, they can be intense. Um, And I realized that with my 13-year-old, I was still trying, because as a toddler, I was taught, if they need to have other tantrum, send them to, you know, put them in in a time out or put them in a space where, you know, feel free to have your tantrum and I'll be here when you're ready or, but leave them alone. It was a lot of separation techniques, but that's what I was taught. That's what I learned about Uh because I did study. I did look for all this, but now there's so much more attachment, um, not attachment parenting, but like positive discipline, positive. So if they're having a meltdown rather than separating them, bring them in. They need to feel that warmth and security and closeness. And so she's 13 now, and I just and I had that aha moment. I'm like, oh my God, I'm always trying to either, if you're having a bad day, let you go off by yourself rather than bringing you in and saying, I can take whatever you have to dish out. I can handle it. I'm strong enough. I don't, you don't need to protect me. And I don't need to solve everything. I can be here for you. And I said, I should have learned that when I, you were a toddler, but now you're 13 and I'm learning it. And so now right, <laughs> we, can always exactly. do, we have time to do do-overs if we didn't get it right the first time or the exactly. second time. I should have another yeah. baby. Do I, right? I, say that all the, I say that all the time. I need another one so that I can do this one like absolutely right. Um, but yeah, that ship sailed. So um, yeah, Me too. Yeah. I, and again, you know, it goes back to that, what I said that we are expecting them to do something that we don't even want to do. You know, when you're, we're, we're expecting, a lot of times we expect kids to, we expect them to behave all the time. And when they share those emotions, they're two years old, they have a meltdown and whatever course we take, but a lot of times we're saying that it's not okay for you to do this. Mm -hmm. Or if you're going to do it, you have to do it someplace else. And yet, do we feel happy and chipper and great all the time as adults? No, we have bad days. Mm -hmm. We have good days. We have bad moments. We have good moments. And if we're in a meltdown, you know, and it, it depends, sometimes it's, would you rather you know, sit all alone and cry? Or would you rather somebody put their arms around you and hug you and hold you? And not try to stuff food down your throat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, baby's crying. Bottle or breast or they don't let the babies. Babies have a voice and they need to, uh, they need to vent. Right. Babies and toddlers, they need to vent. And it's not always they're hungry or that they're tired. They just have they're having a bad day. Their emotional cup is full and it's overflowing and they're having a hard time and they just need to be held. I, I've, I visited a mom 
as a doula, as a postpartum doula, that her baby had been in the NICU for 10 days. And there was really no reason. We, we never got the real reason why the baby was in the NICU. Uh, they didn't know if it was a bacteria. I mean, the baby was healthy was the term. Um, but every time that they wanted to go, that the mom wanted to go be with the baby, as she would start crying, the nurses wouldn't let her in until she stopped crying because they didn't want her to upset the baby. So that did not do well for mom's mental health. Every time she was on her way to, she wanted to breastfeed the baby and she would call and she's like, I'm on my way. Right there, they would give the baby a bottle and, oh, we already he already ate. So all of these were things were going on. And plus, mom and baby were separated because mom had to go home and baby had to stay. So once they were home, and I went and I was visiting them, like one of the first visits we had, the baby was just so upset. And mom was trying to feed him and grandmothers were there and everyone was stressed. And I was like, all right, listen, let's all take a deep breath and let's just listen to him and ask him to tell us what is going on. We're listening to you. We're here for you. The baby must have cried about a good five or 10 minutes in mom's arms. So he wasn't left alone. He, he was supported. And once he was done, grandmothers were freaking out. I had to ask the grandmothers to leave the room because they were, they were, just give them a bottle. <laughs> so grandmothers, grandmothers left. And then once the baby calmed down after about 10 minutes and the mom, I said, you can cry too. And I put my hand on her shoulder and she just started crying and crying. After about 10 minutes, everyone took a deep breath and the baby just looked at her and went, went to the breast. And I was like, he wasn't hungry 10 minutes ago. He just needed to vent and needed us to listen. We didn't have to fix anything. And after that, she goes, he had been crying every single day. And after that, he hardly ever cried. It's like, because he got it out, he was able to get it out of his system. Just the same way that you have a bad day, you don't want somebody to be shutting you up. You, you know, you start talking and venting and someone's like, here, have a bottle. Here, have food. Here, have a drink. Here, uh, sh 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 you know, shushing us. You're like, you want to talk. <laughs> so... So it was a it was it was an amazing it was amazing to see it in in person to see this unfold in front of me. And it was amazing for the moms and the grandmothers also. They were like, "Wow." Right. We don't always have to solve everything. But you need to be present. Right. Yes, that's the difference and we know, you know, again, research shows that the, the cortisol levels in a baby who's crying by themselves and the cortisol levels of a baby who's crying while being held are very, very different. You know, they can, if they're, if they're crying by themselves, those cortisol levels go up. But if they're crying while being held, their cortisol levels stay um, level. And so, yeah, just sometimes they do have to just, they have to feel their feelings. And sometimes we do too. And as a culture... We're taught not to. <laughs> so right. We're not allowed to feel feelings. Moms aren't allowed to be angry or, well, and there's a lot of pressure on, on moms. And, and now, I mean, I'm glad that I didn't have social media when I was a new mom. Right. Um, but I do think that now social media, I think for the first maybe 10 or 12 years of social media, there was a lot of perfect moms on, on social media. And now I see a trend where moms are putting up pictures of, they're, they are crying. That is hard. They're, they're embracing the, their reality. So they're painting. They're starting to paint a different picture or show a different picture um, of, of motherhood, which is not the 1950s perfect mom. Right. 
And so I think I think social media is helping us with that now. But I would remember I would visit moms, and I worked with a lot of uh, local celebrities, and I would go visit them, and they were a mess. But then when they would put their pictures up on Instagram or Facebook, or they were like perfectly made up. And I'm like, that you're not doing moms a, a service by doing that. You have to show this is because they see your picture that you look perfect, and then they look at themselves in the mirror and they're like, I'm failing as a mom because I do not look like that. And I said, you need to show them. I have I have pictures. <laughs> I can put up pictures to show what you really look like. <laughs> right. Proof. I have proof. And that's what you, we need to share as, as a culture. We need to, I think, um, make it more human, make it more real and not so, and not so fake. Parents that doesn't help anybody because, with, like you said, when, you know, here I am a new mom and I, I pull out my phone and I look at all of these other new moms posting their beautiful pictures, you know, they're, they're three seconds of, oh my gosh, the baby's not crying. My mom came and cleaned my house. I had a chance to, you know, take a shower and put on makeup and they take this picture and they post it. And then this other new mom, that's what she sees. And so she thinks that she's failing. But then when she has that little tiny window where everything is perfect, she does the same thing, which Mm -hmm. just perpetuates it. But she's like, oh my gosh, I got to keep up with everybody else. Look, everything's great for me too. Because she doesn't want to think that there's something wrong with her if she's not feeling that perfection and if her baby is crying and, and things like that. And what do you think about moms? At what point should a mom be like, you know, I'm not doing great? Or at what point should she admit? What should she be feeling? What could she be feeling? I mean, I know you're not a psychologist, but as a, as a postpartum doula, like what are some of the things that are signals that a mom is not doing 100% that she could look for, for help? There's some of our, our biggest ones are that, you know, we know that it's, it's normal when, because you're probably not getting enough sleep and maybe not eating as well and things like that, um, that you're going to, as a, as a new mom, usually have some of that, like feeling a little bit, maybe, you know, depressed and things like that. But what we're looking for is somebody who their personality, who they are, is kind of like not there anymore. Um, you know, that's one of the the biggest things that we look for is that they don't, not only are they not, you know, yeah, it's hard to think about when you have a new baby that, you know, oh, I used to love to do this particular activity. This is what I used to do with my girlfriends. But it's normal to be like, oh, I can't, I can't do that right now. But when they get to the point where they're like, I don't want to. I have no interest in these things anymore. That's when we can really start to to worry. And when they feel kind of disconnected from themselves and their family and other people that they used to be close to when they, you know, and disconnection from their baby. Although, you know, that's a whole nother topic is that you don't necessarily automatically love your baby when you first meet them. And sometimes people are concerned because they don't. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about somebody who did have that connection with their baby. And now they're feeling that they don't have that connection with their baby anymore. Uh, those are some of the the biggest things that we look for and that it's happening more that way than than not. So if she's feeling disconnected and not feeling interest in things that she used to do and she's not herself 
underneath more than she is this, you know, kind of disconnected, um, uninterested person. Then that's when we start to be concerned. And if they're having bad thoughts that no one wants to admit that they're having bad thoughts. Right. Thoughts about harming their baby, thoughts about their baby, harm coming to their baby, not necessarily not necessarily them harming their baby, but something happening to their baby. It, it freaks moms out and they don't want to admit that they're going right. through that. Those intrusive thoughts. And those are that's also something that I think as a culture we need to talk about and moms need to know that it is normal and it can happen and and it's happening to most moms. <laughs> right. Um, I, although no one wants to talk about it and admit it. So then definitely that's that's when we as a society, we need to get these moms help and get these. And moms need to ask for help. And uh, they're not right. They're not less of a mom. A lot of times, I mean, they're, the, those intrusive thoughts are something that, you know, we're finding more and more are really, really, really common. Uh, you know, I, the... One of the move, one of the documentaries, and I can't remember which one, talks about the mom who, every time she would walk by, she, you know, every time she would walk by the stairs in her house, she said that the image would come into my pop into my head of me throwing my baby down the steps, and she said I never thought that I, you know, I didn't actually want to do that. I didn't think I would actually do it, but it was just this thought that popped into my head every single time. And, you know, of course she didn't want to tell anybody about it, but then when she, you know, started talking about it, found out that those types of thoughts are really common. And the the big difference is that when you have those intrusive thoughts, do you immediately recoil and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just thought that? Or is it a, I really seriously might throw my baby down the steps? You know, that's kind of our our thing that we're looking at and, you know, kind of getting away from what we were talking about. But there was a woman in, um, I believe it was Texas, but I'm not sure, who just recently killed her two, her two children, her one-year-old and her three-year-old. And, of course, you know, the immediate gut reaction for so many people is, oh, my gosh, what a horrible person who would kill their baby, and they're, you know, they're, they're two young, very little children. And, and yes, I'm not saying I don't have that. But my more immediate reaction is thinking about how much we as a culture and everybody failed that mother. Because people don't go. Women, you know, mothers do not kill mm-hmm. their children. And the fact that this person did. And then she went to the police station. As soon as, as, soon as she uh, killed them, she went straight to the police station and turned herself in. Um, and she, yeah, anyway. But it just shows how much, you know, we're not just failing babies by having that disconnect. We're also failing mothers and fathers and, and, and parents in general because... That was the only, you know, that that's what she felt was was needed for whatever reason because of her psychological, wherever she was. It's um, I've I've met a lot of moms. Well, and now with my intake form, I do ask moms how are they feeling, um, and a lot of them right now we're going through the. I work with a therapist. Um, I refer her. A lot of my clients, a lot of my clients wind up going to see her and they're having so much postpartum anxiety. That's like the main 
um, postpartum disorder they're, they're, she's seeing right now. But in my intake form, I asked them, I said, it's, all, it's confidential. I just, and I'm not a therapist, but I, I, I'm probably the person that you're going to open to the most because you don't want, you're afraid to admit maybe to your partner or to your parents, to the, to the grandparents, what you're feeling. You don't have time to talk to the doctors. Doctors don't ask. How are you feeling emotionally? They just say, okay, physically, you're fine. All right, you're good to go. Let's go six weeks postpartum. You can have sex again. They don't ask. So no one's asking this mom how, everyone calls, how's the baby? Right. How, so I make it a point to always ask the mom, how are you? I don't want to know about the baby. I want to know how you are. And with the sleep uh, support that I'm giving now, in on the intake form, that's one of the first things that I ask the mom about is, are you experiencing intrusive thoughts? How are you feeling? How has your life changed? What self-care are you doing? Because we are very self-sacrificing as a moms as a culture. Um, and some of the moms, they don't understand. And before we start working, I suggest that they go and speak to a therapist because there's so many red flags and they don't understand why. And they're like, I'm fine. I'm like, well, we're we're working, we're gonna work on sleep and that's gonna bring, that's gonna trigger a lot of things. And so we need to also talk to a therapist because I need you to do some previous work with a therapist because that's going, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety involved around, um, around your mothering around, like, I don't say it like that, but I mean, I see all of these red flags and I'm like, sleep isn't going to work until mom is calm because baby's just reflecting back mom's mom's emotional state. Right, exactly. So if mom is is upset and and anxious and depressed and not happy, then baby's not going is baby's just going to reflect it back and it's just going to be this vicious cycle and we're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> so we need to do some we need to do some work before then. So Right. Yeah, cuz if baby's getting that from, you know, from their primary caregiver, or their mother, or their you know, what they're feeling, they're like, oh, it, it's not safe right now. It's this is not, not safe. a safe place. So it's, you know, that's what we, we see feeding problems. We see sleep problems because baby is saying it's not safe. It's not safe for me to sleep right now. It's not safe for me to eat right now uh, because I can feel this coming, you know, that, that energy coming mm -hmm. off of my primary caregiver that's telling me inside it's not safe. It does. And then that when that happens, then that mom is freaking out and it amps everything up. Like you said, we get in this like cycle, this hamster wheel of going round and round and round. And it's not that mom didn't have enough milk. <laughs> right. <laughs> mom just doesn't have enough milk. And that's why the baby's like that. No, I mean, there's so much more. And it's, um, well, because of podcasts and because of books, and there are good books coming out, thank God. There are. There are. And since people are talking about it and using social media now to support or to shed light on this part of, of mothers and postpartum and parenting and babies, um, hopefully within the next generation or the next 15, 20 years, there will be a shift because I can't believe that. I, I think it's slowly starting. Right. We're slowly... Uh, in the past, well, at least I've, I mean, I've been doing this work for 16 years. So in the past 16 years, I've seen 
a small shift. So I hope in the next 15, 16 years, there'll be a bigger shift. Um, right. And and that's, I feel like, as, you know, postpartum doulas in particular, that by caring for the parents, then we are able to help them to develop that relationship with their baby that I was talking about, develop that trust and helping, you know, that whole everything. But when, when somebody is, you know, number one, the new parents don't know what's going on with themselves. They don't know what to expect for themselves or for their baby. They are probably sleep deprived. They are probably not eating appropriately to fuel their hormones and their, their body systems. And I use the example a lot of, you know, if you've ever been lost, you know, you're driving someplace and you end up lost in a strange place at night and you're tired and you just want to get to your destination and everything just seems harder. But if you have, you know, all of a sudden your, your GPS kicks in or you you know, pull over to the gas station and this person is like, oh yeah, you're like two blocks away from where you're going. Like that makes all the difference in the world. And it makes, you know, and, and I feel like that's really with us what we as professionals are is we're helping these people. You can't make good decisions when you're tired. Emotions get more amped up when you're tired. Um, and so when you're kind of lost already, it just, it's worse. But when you can have that person to come in, that, that GPS, that person at the gas station that comes in and gives you those really good directions, then it makes everything easier. And, and then there you are, you're at your, your destination. So we, we can't expect parents to make good, dis, well, not good decisions, but we can't expect parents to feel good when they are tired and exhausted and lost. And so giving them, you know, that support is really so important so that they they can navigate this world with their new baby. I love that. I love that. Where as professionals, we can help parents navigate and not feel so lost because that's what right. I think the majority of us, at least I felt that when I was a new mom, I was like, what is going on? And no one could tell me. Right. No one could. Yeah. So the pediatrician would just check the baby, but no one could tell me what was I just thought, well, I just kind of learned as I went, but it was no one, if I had known what I know now. Oh, right. I mean, I still would have screwed up something, but. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. That's what we yeah, have there before. <laughs> bring my baby home from the hospital, this new little person. And like we, we brought my son in and we put him down in, in this cradle that was actually my cradle when I was a baby. And it was almost kind of like this ceremonial thing where we brought him in, we put him down in the cradle and then we're like, now what, now what do we do? <laughs> That's it. You know, like we were prepared. We took childbirth education classes in the hospital. They, you know, helped take care of the baby and everything. And then they, they send you home with this person with like, there's no support in education. And we were just like, okay, I guess we're just going to wing it from here. Um, and that's, that's what parents are still unfortunately doing. Um, and like you said, there are some fantastic books out there. There is some fantastic social media. There is a lot of support. Are there any books that you recommend for, for new parents? Um, one of my, my favorite sleep books is the Holistic... Uh, sleep. It's Lindsay Hookway's book. Okay. Um, 
I can't think of the name of it. It's on a, on a shelf over here, but the holistic sleep coaching, maybe I can't read that title. It's too far away. Um, by Lindsay Hookway is a just really, that's one of my very, very favorites. And then there's the book, Your Baby is Talking to You or Speaking to You by Kevin Nugent. Okay. Um, that's really good too, because it, it helps parents to realize that their babies are telling them things, you know, so many, again, it goes back to that, like my baby's just this little lump of clay and, um, you know, but no, they're, they're little humans and they tell you things. They say, Hey, this is what's going on. But if you don't know that language, if you don't know that second language, then it's, you know, it'd be like me going over to Germany and not understanding what anybody's telling me. So that book is helpful with that. So those are two that I do really, really like. Um, well, I had uh, Ellie, Ellie Taylor was on the podcast um, a couple weeks ago and her book, Becoming Us. I mean, I think anyone who's not a parent yet who was thinking of becoming a parent should definitely read that one. We yes, just that is so good. Our our producer Luke is not a parent yet, but he just got his copy. <laughs> Becoming very us. good, very good. Yes, no, I, Luke, yeah. he learned so much through these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, Ellie Taylor is fantastic. Her her book is great. Anytime you get a chance to listen to her or take her um, take her course, her course for professionals to help parents is really good too. And I've just started reading, well, I read uh, Rest, Play, and Grow, or Grow, Rest, Play, by Deborah McNamara. McNamara. And I'm just reading now The Conscious Parent mm-hmm. by Dr. Shafali. Because um, I still have time. I'm still a parent. <laughs> and plus, if I can just start helping new parents, that's my mission is to keep just helping new parents understand and enjoy their maternity. And yes, it's going to be hard. And But if you can enjoy, if, if you can find the joy within it, then it's it'll be worth it. It'll be worth right. it. Right. Exactly. Yes. Laura, thank you so much for being on on the podcast with me. And thank you for your time. And where can people get in touch with you? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It has been fun. I always love hanging out with you. My my memories of of Mexico before, right? Like the last thing before COVID was like fantastic. Um, But I am, you can find me um, on on social media, I am for love of baby, and I'm also Laura Nance Education on Facebook and Instagram, and I can also be found uh, via email at I can it's Laura at for love of baby dot okay. com. So um, those are some of the places to find me. Perfect, thank you. I will include all of that in the description below and. We are done. Thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. Yes. Baby Time Podcast is recorded at Pink Tree Studio. 